Should the United States need to project kinetic power far away, the decisive factor would be logistics. Yet, according to a detailed study by Brookings, the military has neglected logistics in recent years. For what that means and some of the consequences, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Brookings' senior fellow and logistics study author, Michael O'Hanlon. So, reading through the study that you all did regarding defense logistics, U.S. defense logistics, you know, it appears that you're trying to do a little uh, nudging here to wake folks up to the less sexy side of American defense, but a vitally important aspect of American defense. So, why don't we just start from the beginning on what, you know, made you want to take this on and, you know, what were, was there something that occurred that, you know, made you start worrying or you wanted to dig deeper into this. Yeah, thank you. Well, of course, it's an important topic that we are always reminded needs to be brought back to a higher level of visibility than it often is because there's the old cliche, you know, civilians think strategy, generals think logistics, and logistics are not as sexy. It's about moving stuff around, having spare parts where they need to be, getting food and fuel and water to people. You know, it's it's not always as glamorous as flying the latest high-tech bomber or drone or what have you. There's that just bureaucratic and institutional tendency to neglect it. Then there's the fact the United States has become spoiled in modern times, in a sense, by being able to wage war. Obviously, that's no great benefit. So we're not spoiled in the sense of having too much peace. But when we have fought, we've fought enemies that are tactically very tough, but strategically incapable of interrupting our major intercontinental transport and resupply and local logistics efforts. We could build up forces 30 years ago in Saudi Arabia, then liberate Kuwait sort of at our whim at a timing and with a preparation that we dictated and Saddam Hussein couldn't really influence. As tough as the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been to fight, you know, street by street, block by block and road by road, they have not been able to interfere with our communications, with our long distance planes and aircraft, with our big bases. And all this would almost certainly be very different if we ever, God forbid, fought uh, China. But even if we fought North Korea, you'd have to expect a lot of missile attacks against bases. You'd have to expect uh, maybe some mini submarines trying to sink ships as they approached Korean ports with supplies. And so on top of that, you have all the cyber threats that certainly North Korea, certainly China and Russia could pose to our forces and the and the command and control systems that direct them, that keep track of where things are. And so for all those reasons, plus the fact that I had a, two very good colleagues last year, an Air Force logistician and a Marine Corps logistician who were on military education assignment to Brookings, we decided to put our heads together and write some reminders about the central importance of this endeavor and this part of military operations today. And so would you categorize the state of military logistics as, you know, everything's working fine, but it's not very malleable, I guess would be the word you would use. It may not be able to respond to a threat to an actual, you know, infrastructure or even just taking out one of our air carriers. You know, what what would that mean if that were to actually occur? I wouldn't say that our logistics today is terrible. And I'll say why in a second, but I, I don't think we have enough capacity. We simply lack adequate numbers of certain kinds of ships and even airplanes for long distance transport. Also, some of our computer and communication systems that are designed to track all this stuff are too complicated. I think that modern American logistics are not atrocious. They're not in terrible shape, but there are a number of shortfalls. And this is often, again, the result of the fact they tend to get underappreciated relative to combat platforms and major modernization efforts. And by the way, when I say logistics, I'm thinking about 
the planes and ships that move supplies and people. I'm thinking about the computer systems that track all of that and coordinate it. And I'm thinking of the bases and the airfields and ports where we have to access and unload and reload and so forth. So that's what I think of as the broader logistics enterprise, not the combat operations per se, but things that support those operations, including also equipment, maintenance and repair. And when I think of all of that, and when we again, reflect on the history that you and I have been discussing already. What we remember in the modern era is the United States has gotten better at transportation over the course of, let's say, the lifetimes of those of us who are 50, 60 years old, because after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and seemed to be threatening the Persian Gulf, at that time, we created the Rapid Deployment Force, then later Central Command and Transportation Command. We wound up getting much more focused on logistics to a place where we couldn't prepare over many decades like in Europe. And so we built up fast sea lift ships and roll-on, roll-off ships and fleets that were not about bombing enemies, but were about transporting supply. We prioritized those things within the U.S. military and got much better at them. And we saw the results of that in Operation Desert Storm in 1991, and really also the resupply efforts for the long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan this century, which may not have been as successful as we wished in tactical or in broader state building terms, but they were quite impressive in logistics terms for the most part. Unfortunately, we also developed the assumption that logistics would be largely uncontested, that if we could manage just the throughput side of things, that the enemy would not be able to get in the way. And that may have been true against the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, but it almost certainly would not be true against North Korea, Russia, China. And so we need to think about logistics as being fundamentally contested, fundamentally challenged by the enemy in any future war. And of course, the goal here is not to fight and win that war. It's to deter that war by an enemy not thinking that it sees an Achilles heel in our defense preparation. I don't think that North Korea, Russia, or even China would really want to take on our fighter pilots, our you know carrier platforms, our tank crews, our combat capability. But if they thought they could somehow keep us from accessing the theater where they wanted to do other mischief, China taking Taiwan, North Korea attacking South Korea, Russia conquering Ukraine, or maybe even the Baltic states, then they might be tempted to try to sort of put us on the mat by taking out our bases, our communications, our lift long enough that they could achieve their local aggressive purposes. And then perhaps we would not be willing or able to get back in time to reverse that aggression or to prevent it in the first place. If, if they're going to have a theory of victory, I think it's going to be something like that, which means they're going to be more likely to feel encouraged if they see a defect in our logistics and our transport and our command and control than if they see you know, one, two, few fighter squad squadrons or bomber wings or, or uh, you know, brigade combat teams. I don't think they're going to persuade themselves that they can, you know, outfight us and outslug us on the battlefield, but they might persuade themselves they can keep us from even getting to that battlefield. And that's why logistics are so important for deterrence, not just for warfighting. We're talking to Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. And so what about joint warfare operations and where do logistics stand uh, when we work with our allies that are overseas and maybe even closer to the actual battlefield itself? Do we handle the logistics for our own or are we relying on our partners to kind of fill in some of these gaps that we may have? Well, the partners are going to be good in many cases on their own territory or in the immediate environs of their own territory, but they're generally even less apt than we are to develop the long-range power projection capabilities. Because after all, we are the world's preeminent 
long range fighter. Here we are in our North American paradise, but most of the wars we prepare to fight or do fight are in Eurasia. So we are in the business and in the habit of moving 3,000, 5,000, 8,000 miles to go wage war. And of course, a lot of people will say, well, why do we why do we think that way? Why do we operate that way? And of course, the reason is when we left Eurasia to its own devices, we got two world wars out of the process. And so ever since 1945, our basic guiding principle has been don't leave those Eurasians to their own devices. Uh, they won't necessarily be able to solve their problems. And if we work together with like-minded states, largely along the littoral of Eurasia, then then we can probably do a pretty good job of, of being successful. But those states are usually only going to be good at helping us once we get our stuff close to them. So Japan and South Korea are fantastic for helping us move around their territories and be able to resupply our forces within their domestic economies and infrastructures. Japan provides a lot of bases. So if we want to get to South Korea or to Taiwan or somewhere else, that we can often use Japanese facilities for that as well as stepping stones, lily pads, refueling bases, operating bases, etc. And you can go through each of the major theaters, the Middle East and Europe being the other two, where we have major plans and a lot of forces. And in each case, the story is pretty much the same, that the local partners are very good locally but they're not so good at helping us get our forces to their territory. And in a place like Europe, they're not even all that good always at helping each other. So the countries of Western Europe that would have to maneuver and move to get to battlefields, let's say in the Baltic region, would not necessarily get a lot of help from Germany and Poland along the way. They often don't have enough transport capability themselves in the case of, let's say, Britain and France, Canada, Spain, Italy, but also the territories through which they might need to traverse to get to a battlefield are often not properly prepared for the movement of combat equipment. So often bridges aren't up to snuff in Germany and Poland, for example. And once you get over into Ukraine, then you would have, if you ever were trying to move stuff there, you know, and of course we do move a lot of stuff there right now, but then you have challenges of the rail lines, maybe different gauge, all sorts of things uh, can get in the way. So as a rule, allies are good for logistics on their own territories and sometimes for the area immediately adjacent as with Japan and Northeast Asia. But no other American ally really has the ability to move forces very far on its own. You bring up the logistics triad and I want to focus in on one aspect of it just because it has you know, probably the most or has seen the most change over the years, and that's the digital logistics systems. Obviously, they've made things more convenient and efficient, but you're also going to sacrifice a little bit there because you open yourself up to more vulnerabilities when it comes to cyber attacks and whatnot. Um, what can you tell me about the state of DOD's uh, digital logistics systems right now? And are they being updated enough to patch up those security loopholes? Well, this was something I really learned a lot from my Air Force colleague, Jason Wolf, Colonel Jason Wolf, who's now been reassigned and he's now down in the uh, North Carolina area working with the Air Force. But he, as a professional logistician, as well as Marcos Melendez, my other co-author, both recognized just how many separate IT systems were being used by different parts of the military, different services. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you've got to fight as a joint force. So what matters is your overall aggregate capability and your ability to work together, not any one service's specific contributions. And moreover, if you have these multiple systems, not only is it harder to have them speak to each other and track each other's data flows, information flows, but it's harder to keep them up to snuff 
with cybersecurity. And so a strong adversary can go find one of the weaker links, whichever one of those, I think roughly half dozen component IT capabilities today are least hardened, least resilient to attack, might be the one that the North Koreans or the Chinese or the Russians sneak into and mess everything else up that way, or maybe even access some of the other IT systems and, you know, put in false data, uh, confuse people as to where things are, erase files, make a mess of logistics. And then you wind up with sort of what we had in Operation Desert Storm, which is all sorts of stuff all over the theater, but no one really is quite sure where it is. And Desert Storm, it didn't matter. This is back in 1991, of course, the liberation of Kuwait. We were so strong against Saddam and we had so much excess capability after the Cold War with a drawdown that hadn't yet even really fully played out that it didn't matter if we were inefficient. But in a future war, it really could. And so having six separate IT systems is probably not the way to go. All right. So that's just one of the issues that needs solving. Let's uh, let's fix the rest of the problems right here and now, Michael Hanlon. What can uh, the Defense Department do to restore this function? And what do experts like yourself and logisticians in the actual uh, defense realm hoping to see in the next few years to shore up these issues that may come into play in a future war? Well, I think Jason was pretty effective and cogent in our paper, basically explaining you need to have a lead agency and empower somebody to find that one central, unified, resilient IT system. So that's a piece of it. And so part of that's just a bureaucratic decision about who's going to be empowered and then an implementation decision where hopefully DOD buys good software this time and doesn't buy flawed stuff, which has sometimes been the problem as well. You're in this dilemma where you really want to tap into commercial software to the extent possible, and yet commercial software often has bugs and historically often hasn't been as resilient because people didn't think it had to be. Now, luckily, some of that's changed because a lot of companies by now have gotten attacked and hacked. And so Microsoft and others that build the world's best software, but usually build it for private companies, not for the Department of Defense, they have gotten more serious about cybersecurity over the last 10, 12, 15 years. And so in that sense, DOD can look to commercial software, perhaps more than it might have a while ago, and hope that that commercial software will, will not only be much better than software made just specifically for the Department of Defense, but also be hardened enough to withstand cyber attack. So that's one encouraging trend line. Another encouraging anecdote or observation, it's not quite the same as a direct answer to your question, because it's not quite an action plan for us, but it shows the possibilities. The Ukrainians have really stood up beautifully against Russian cyber attack for the last year and a half, partly because they were getting attacked before February 24th, 2022. And so they built up resilience, partly because we went over and helped them with some of our software that's become much better in these last few years. And so that illustrates that it is possible to find solutions to some of these challenges and not just throw up our arms and feel like DOD or U.S. intelligence community software is just never going to be good enough and resilient enough to be able to get the job done. And the last thing I would point to, it's not quite in the exact cyber realm, but it's related. About 10, 15 years ago, we started getting very worried that our big satellites were sitting ducks for attack. They were just too expensive, too vulnerable. We depended on small numbers of extremely costly high-end systems that were orbiting Earth in predictable paths or orbits that an enemy could attack. And so we started diversifying our satellite fleets with things like Starlink, Elon Musk's data flow system. And 
other kinds of microsatellites that create swarming capability. So if any one small satellite is lost or destroyed, you've got others that can fill in for it. And that same kind of concept of building in redundancy as well as resilience can be applied to some extent to the cyber world. So it's not quite a direct answer to your question. Like I say, I don't, I don't, I haven't written the plan and I'm not capable myself of writing the plan that solves this problem. But I do see a lot of encouraging technological trends that would indicate it is at least partially solvable. Now we never want to assume any one IT system will definitely withstand uh, attack in time of crisis or war. And so you do need ability to recover fallback options, you know, second best options. We should never just get so confident about our new software techniques that we think we can definitely keep our systems up and running continuously in a future crisis. They still could be taken down, but a lot more can be done to make the adversary's job more difficult in that regard. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, you mentioned a, a lead agency to tackle all these issues. There is a defense agency with logistics in its name, the Defense Logistics Agency. What role do they play in the scope of things? And were you able to analyze their activities and how they affect any of these vulnerabilities we may have? It's an excellent question. And I'm going to have to apologize in advance for the limits of my knowledge. And I hope it's not unfair to anybody. But if I think about the history of the Defense Logistics Agency in the context of, you know, the Goldwater-Nichols reforms of the 1980s, the creation of Transportation Command and the Rapid Deployment Force, all the stuff that happened in the 70s and 80s that made us get more focused on this problem. I think of DLA fitting into that overall effort by trying to think about adequate stocks of equipment, materiel, fuel, spare parts, think about adequate prioritization of logistics within the budget universe, give a prominent leader from that agency to be at the you know central board of directors level within DOD that logistics always has an institutional voice along with transportation command and arguably maybe even strategic command and cyber command. They're all thinking about one dimension or another of logistics. But DLA to my mind, and this is where I worry about being a little bit unfair, it's not really meant as a criticism of DLA, but it's a reflection of where we are. I don't see DLA as ever having been charged with making our logistics system resilient to enemy attack, because that's where its mandate overlaps with the combatant commands that are geographically located that have historically, since Goldwater-Nichols of 1986, been our lead warfighting organizations within the Department of Defense. And logistics really needs to be central to the way that Indo-Pacific Command, European Command, Central Command, and the others think about their operations. It can't be just delegated to a side support agency because the logistics are central to the war effort and they are only going to be successful if combat capabilities are used to protect them. And if combat capabilities and forces are diversified, spread around, made more resilient, such that those combat forces themselves are survivable. In other words, you can't separate logistics over here and fighting over there, give the fighting to the combatant commands and just have somebody else take care of the logistics as a more mundane you know, matter like going to the grocery store to make sure you have your refrigerator stocked every Sunday. The logistics are central to the fight. And therefore, DLA, uh, as important as it is, as effective as it is within its own mandate, as sort of a second tier DOD organization by comparison with the services themselves or with the combatant commands, it can't really be expected to handle this problem, you know, separately, sequestered over here on the side. It's got to, all it can really do ultimately is feed in its efforts 
into what the combatant commands and the joint force are trying to do in a more integrated way, because that's where logistics has to be ultimately as an integrated key element of the overall combat and joint force. Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at Brookings, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. 
because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do 
or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. A matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief in my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.